This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Good afternoon and welcome to the show. I'm Mira Sivasudi. Dr. George Lee, consultant urologist in the studio with me. We're discussing <laughs> something very interesting. George, I mean, I know it's Friday, it's but Friday. we decided to discuss a prime minister in this region. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Singapore's prime minister, Lee Sian Lo. Well, he, before we discuss that, we have to say that for those people who think that it's not too auspicious to talk about, you know, cancer during Chinese New Year. It's, it's the eighth day of Chinese New Year. I think, you know, some oh, people yes, think... Oh, it is today. Eight, yeah. Eighth day, yeah. so of Chinese New Year. Some people might think, is that well, we're not really talking about something morbid. We're talking about something in the different aspects yeah. of prostate cancer. Very positive. Are any, either of you, Hokkien, we have in the studio with us also to talk about, and this doctor is actually very skilled in robotic radical prostatectomy, which is what Lee Sien Lung went through, mm. is Dr. Lu Chitsin. Welcome, Dr. Lu. Thank you, Mira. Are if I had to answer you, that, yeah, we're both Hokkien. Of you, both of you are Hokkien. <laughs> My goodness, right. you're the reason there was a racket last night. For two hours. <laughs> we have the Pai Ti Gong right in the window. What does that mean? That means uh, you pray to the god of the sky, right? Yes. yes. Oh, is that why? <laughs> That's right. We were opening the skies for everybody to get the good fortune yesterday with that, okay. <laughs> that fireworks all night. Interesting. Um, but, you know, we always you know, are ready for the Hokkien New Year because we know what to expect. Mm. You're, very, you're very predictable that way. So, okay, we're going to talk about Lee Sien Lung. He's undergone surgery to remove his prostate gland. And I think what caught my attention was that it said he was going to go back to work in a week's time, just one week of recovery. And I'm like, isn't that really, really short? Um, even after his diagnosis, he was he was continuing with his busy schedule. He spent the first week in February in Germany, and then he went on to a working visit in Spain, and he didn't really stop, right? Um, maybe we just quickly start with you, George. I mean, prostate um, is a problem with older men. Mm-hmm. Lee Sien Long is only 63. In uh-huh. my mind, he's <laughs> not very spring old. spring chicken, yeah. right? <laughs> <laughs> but you know, how did this... I mean, and a prostate problem is going to occur. To, it's going to be a problem for every man. You've mentioned this. Yeah, past. I know. I mean, essentially, this, um, towards the beginning of this year, I think we, we, we had two prominent politician affected by prostate cancer. Obviously, I'm a Glanthanese Stoke guru, mm-hmm. clearly had a, uh, you know, yes. an issues with uh, prostate cancer. That's right. And then, you know, and uh, on the other hand, the better news, obviously, detection that much earlier on, uh, Lee Shenlong had that removed. And in fact, you know, prostate cancer affected many, many more politicians, well-known politicians like Colin Powell's, N- uh, Nelson Mandela. They were, yeah, there's quite a few people, like Robert De Niro, clearly not politicians, but also a by this, so it is a spectrum of po- uh, prostate cancer. I mean, we're very lucky to have Chit here today mm-hmm. because he's experienced in dealing with prostate cancer using the latest technology. And in fact, this is what we're going to focus on today, which is what Li Shen went through and what I would like the um, you know Klang Valley listeners to get involved in is that this whole idea of you know fast recovery. Because in the eighties, you know, you know, it's not too long ago we were having. Our our, you know, when, whenever somebody had an operation, you said bed rest for a long time, stay in hospital for days and days and days. But that time has changed. But how far can we push people in that sort of scenario is an interesting subject that we like to talk about yeah. today. So give us a call if you have a question, prostate cancer and robotic radical prostatectomy. And we're talking about a robot literally doing this job. Um. <laughs> <laughs> sounds, a bit, sounds a bit far-fetched and scary, right? Not, not 100%, <laughs> let, you know, rest assured. Um, our phone lines are open. 
open, so give us a call 0377109000. You can tweet BFM Radio or text 016-201-9000. So, you know, Dr. Lowe, you're very much, very skilled in robotic radical prostatectomy. How did you get into it in the first place? I think that's main, uh, it's, it's actually mainly uh, patient-driven because the rest of the world has moved on to robotic surgery. And uh, this part of the world, we have been a little bit slow. Quite clearly, with the internet, patients know what you can expect. Mm -hmm. And so the demand is there. And I was just responding to the demand. So I started training uh, uh, my uh, my training in robotics about uh, five, five and a half years ago. Mm -hmm. and, and I just got busier and busier. And uh, right now, I believe in urology. I'm probably the busiest in the country. Really? Mm. Okay. And why do you think that's the case? Well, first of all, uh, first of all prostate cancer is, in, is increasingly recognized, especially at these early stages. And so more and more of these uh, very early cases uh, are, are found and they will need to be uh, managed. Uh, and secondly, as people get to know more and more about uh, newer and newer treatment, uh, better outcomes and all that, the demand is there. So, so it is a natural uh, meeting of, of, of these two very important factors. Okay, and mm. survival rate is what ninety nine percent. Well, that <laughs> well, it's, it's it, well, obviously it depends on what yes. stage patients are presented with. Okay, yeah. I mean, or for the benefit of listeners, Chit, perhaps you would like to explain a little bit exactly what this myth of robot is. It are we really having this robot <laughs> walking around the hospital, <laughs> going in there and say, "I've spotted the prostate. I'm going to take it okay. out." And yeah. this is called Da Vinci. Am I correct? Da Vinci. Oh, yeah. I'll never forget Da Vinci. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Before that, we have a um, caller, Prem. Mm -hmm. How are you? Oh yes, fine. Thank you. Fine. Thank Prem, you. your question. Okay, um, if my memory serves me correct, mm -hmm. in the early 1990s, uh, that time it was the then uh, Deputy Prime Minister Lee Siang Jung had was diagnosed with lymphoma. lymphoma. Yes. Okay. Now and then today he's also uh, diagnosed with early stage of prostate cancer. Now, can I know what is your opinion? Is his body somewhat uh, susceptibility or to getting cancer in the future? Compromise. Whether his immune system is compromised. Thank you very much, Prem. Okay, thank you very much. Bye-bye. Yeah, if you look at it statistically, uh, lymphoma and uh, leukemia sufferers do get more cancers compared to the general population. So, yes, treatment uh, of any cancers will render the subjects a little bit more prone to a second cancer. Uh, but whether this is actually due to his lymphoma or, or the treatment is difficult to be sure. Actually, mm -hmm. his doctors have come out to say that there is absolutely no, no link. link. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But so. I think the link will absolutely be minimum. But what it's uh, portrayed is this guy is very resilient, isn't yeah. he? You know, it's like, you know, going through, Superman. you know, obviously Superman <laughs> going through troubles after troubles. And then just like, you know, hey, you know what, uh, let's let's give me 12 hours to have the operation. And next week I'll be on my, you know, in yeah. my Eight office doing it. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Well, let's not forget that his father it's now 91, is it? And yeah. and still, of course, you know, not, not very well at the, the moment. Yeah. Yes, yeah. but but uh, you know, this he, he has longevity. So he his, has uh, good genes somewhere. Yes. <laughs> yes. And so, and George has always said in the past that most men die with prostate cancer. Yes, absolutely. They rarely die of prostate cancer. So. Um, Survival rate is really high um, once detected early. Is that what you're saying? Yes. I think, you know, for somebody who has been diagnosed with early stage prostate cancer and, uh, and found to have no spread at all, uh, you're looking at uh, a 10 years survive, uh, survival overall of 90%. So 
at least 90% will remain alive for 10 years. Now, this is, doesn't mean that uh, all these 90% are free of cancer. Some may have, you know, developed recurrence and all that, but they are still very much alive and, and most mm. of them well. I mean, in, in one of my opinions about prostate cancer is awfully complex because, you know, you're right that majority of men, if you live long enough, will get some form of prostate yeah. cancer, but majority of men will not die of prostate cancer. That's one complexity. The other angle of looking at that complexity is that not every man having the diagnosis of prostate cancer that actually needs treatment. True. You yeah. know, and then that is another complexity that we can't unravel because one of the major landmark change or, you know, uh, breakthrough in prostate cancer care would be da Vinci which we're going to elaborate a lot more mm. the other thing which will be a holy grail is to identify who are the ones who is going to run into problems and who are the ones who are not going to run into problems and that will be an interesting outset uh, and only concept. a certain percentage have the aggressive form of prostate cancer I think you have to uh, Mira, look at it both from the point of view of the likely behavior of the disease and the age of the person now if you look at Li Shenlong he's 63 and let's say if he's expected to live till 90 you're looking at another 27 years and even a very slow indolent cancer may catch him up in that 27 years. And so I'm not surprised that the Singaporean urologist has gone ahead and took his cancer out, mm -hmm. even though it was only one out of 38 biopsy positive. It's yes. a tiny, tiny cancer. Now, I don't, we don't know the, the grade of the cancer, how malignant it is. Uh, but you know, a cancer of that uh, size would be expected in a normal average person take about 15 years to finish up that person okay. but this guy is expected to live maybe another 30 years so you do take in that into account so you have to take that into account as well so you ask your patient's family history how old did yeah, your well, dad in fact that is one to? of the ways to assess that oh. you know, actually you know the, your longevity so you assess your good genes you know if your you know majority yeah. of your parental kind of life expectancy is in your 60s and if you have this uh, condition in your 60s some people take that into account yes yeah. and, and as, of, I, as you said 63 isn't very Old, yeah. actually. And you see, I mean, there are 63 and there are 63. There are 63 with diabetes, hypertension and the whole, you know, uh, spectrum of uh, condition. And there are 63 who are fighting fit, who swims, you know, a few kilometers a day and all that. Like and so you, yes. <laughs> like our producer, Lim Soon Heng. Lim Soon Heng. How he old is he? 60 laps every right. morning. Is that right? Yeah. Wow. Soon Heng 62. Oh, okay. okay. Don't tell me. Oh, right. On no, live radio. Right. <laughs> Hi, LTY, how are you today? Yeah, good afternoon, Mira. Good afternoon. Your question. Uh, good afternoon, Dr. George and Dr. Lou. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, yes, Dr. Lou. Yeah, yeah. Hello. Uh, yeah, hello, Dr. Lou, is it? Yes, yes. Dr. Lou. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, may I wish you all a happy Chinese Thank you, year, thank you. Yeah? Happy New Year. Some, uh, in, in Chinese, all right, Dr. Yes. George? Yes. Uh, all Seventy one. Seventy one. Seventy one. That is not true. No, LTY, I've met you before. I know what state you are in. So, yeah. <laughs> I have no problem. I'm very, very healthy, but I'm preparing for it. Okay. Thank, thank you. you. Thank, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye bye. 
fantastic question. This mm. is a dilemma we see every yes. day. You know, we have somebody who goes for the screening test, PSA comes back to be abnormal, and then we do a biopsy, and then there you go, there's a cancer. So we have to work out, um, number one, how much is this patient uh, going to accept in terms of treatment because all treatment will have some degree of compromise. And then so if LTY, you know, um, touch wood, let's say someone else, 71 years old, presented with this condition, we want to know how aggressive this is. And we have a calculation to work out the aggressiveness. So some callers might call in to start mm. asking about Gleason grade. Essentially, yeah. the higher it is, then the more uh, aggressive this is. And then so we, we work that out to see how fast this cancer is going to affect you. That's one of the things. And if it's the second thing is longevity. Like, you know, LTY actually is quite a fit man from what I recall the last time I met him. Yeah. And then so, you know, I would think that, you know, his longevity is an account to take into account. So if unfortunately I would detect something, I would actually treat someone in LTY situation because he is fit and then I would calculate his longevity to go on beyond another ten years. Chit, what do you think? Yeah, I think you know, being 71, I, I usually regard the age of 70 to 75 as the watershed age for prostate cancer. Very few pa patients beyond the age of 75, if diagnosed with prostate cancer, you will end up treating because they simply do not have that life expectancy to benefit from the treatment. Mm -hmm. And uh, of course, below 70, you know, you would want to treat them. Uh, but that age group, 70 to 75, of course, there are exceptions. There are individuals like LTY and there are individuals who are, you know, not so not so fit. And so you look at that and you look at the, the disease and you, you make a decision. So, I mean, I have treated patients, for example, uh, SOS 76, but he was exceptionally fit. What does that mean? Well, physically fit, no medical conditions at all, no diabetes, nothing, you know, very active, you know, sort of uh, uh, walk several kilometers a day. And he had a, a slightly more aggressive form of cancers. So in these situations, you have to balance it out. You know, the cancer is quite aggressive. It may take only five years to finish him off. And if you think he has certainly a lot more than five years to go, you would put that to him, mm -hmm. that, look, without treatment, you can be expected how many years. With treatment, if, they, if all goes well, you may expect how many years. And the patients will, you know, come to a decision. Let's look at the prostate itself. It's a gland, right? It's it a is a gland. Tiny a gland, yeah. gland. Well, it's, it's well, it depends <laughs> on your age. When you're first born, it's pretty tiny. But Correct. It gets, and yeah. that's the thing. You've mentioned this in the past, George. Right. It continues to grow. That's yes. right. And here's the reason why it gives most men a problem. If it's not cancer, it's an enlarged prostate. That's correct. Yeah. That's really unfair, actually. <laughs> For men, we're born unfair. <laughs> that, <laughs> that I find it surprising coming from you, Mira. I, yeah. I am quite fair she, she, that After way. seven years, she's she is now on our side. <laughs> no, I'm fair. If it has been my wife, she would say, well, at least there's something <laughs> fair. <laughs> That's why God is fair. That's right. You know, my wife would say that. It's, and you said it's unfair. I think, you know, there is a God. <laughs> Finally. <laughs> but yeah, describe this prostate gland and why does it continue to grow? George. <laughs> well, actually, most textbooks will describe it as a walnut shape. And in fact, you know, most people will have no idea in Malaysia what walnut uh, shape would be does like. Does it cost <laughs> an arm and a leg? <laughs> That's right. Okay, right. <laughs> and in, essentially, it's kind of like a pyramid structure, you know, shaped uh, structure that is residing between the bladder and the base of the penis. And its sole function is to create a liquid
liquid for the sperm to swim in. So uh, there are many speculations because, you know, uh, prostate itself contains two types of muscles or, or um, cells. One is muscular cell, the other one is secretion cells. And then we actually don't know why would it continue to grow. I actually read somewhere that the rest of a man's body will shrink with age. The only thing that will continue to grow is the prostate. Now that so is bad news. It, it is bad news. My plus, mind is going yeah. to the wrong Plus places. two other organs. Yeah. The nose and the ears. <laughs> That's right. They, they grow? never stop growing. Yes. Are you no- kidding? That means we lie a lot more. You, if, you, if, you, if you look at the photograph of a man in his 20 and and you know compared to in his 60s and 70s and you just zoomed in on the ears and the nose and you will find evidence that it Shit, yeah. I disagree. That's I think because they ate I, and just drank too no, much no, I think I think the nose grow because we lie more <laughs> and the, the ears grow is because we lost more hair and then our ears are exposed. That is true. <laughs> well, whatever process, <laughs> it, 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 you know, but, but definitely the, these two uh, organs continue uh, to grow. But you yeah. know what? Put the blame on testosterone. Yeah. Or, or your family. Or perhaps, yes. yes. Yeah. You mm. never know. You have a pot belly because of testosterone levels <laughs> the, dropping. The, yeah, dropping. But the thing is that the, ironically is the testosterone that feeds the prostate. That's another complexity that we don't understand. Men who have too little testosterone, the prostate will grow. Men have too much testosterone, the prostate will grow. So that is the sort of We're lagging in a lot of research work when it comes to prostate. And then uh, increasingly, uh, um, with all these, um, you know, celebrities and famous people who suffer from prostate cancer, it brings a lot more awareness. And that's something that I really want to talk about. Shit, you know, no, these days and age, I'm saying someone like Li Shenlong who has got this condition, and it's publicized so much to the extent of how many calls of the biopsy was done, how many hours was it in hospital. That's because he's the prime minister. I know, of but the thing is that it doesn't have to be in that details. And to me, <laughs> the first thing, because you know, the first thing it shows is that it's a Singapore way of portraying that you know clearly you know they're in the forefront of this medical you know. Um, I mean, on one hand. I am, you know, um, I'm happy that's a lot of awareness has been brought forward. You know, you know, a lot of people begin to know what prostate is because, you know, many men don't really know what prostate is. And then on the other hand, is this a sort of world that we're in at the moment that, you know, um, publicity of exactly how much uh, the biopsy is and because all these are personal medical information you're right this is a prime minister of a country but um, you know you can't help in thinking that it also portrayed a country that you know oh you know what you know because after all singapore is a hub for healthcare in asia what's your view on that shit? george i'm surprised you actually <laughs> said that you think so you think that the, the, well it, it, you know what, it does you know portray what? it well i've always um, and it's true singapore Great marketeers, right? It's <laughs> like it's like he's just like you know, and, and and you know, it's it's packaging this so well that it is really publicized well. So for benefits of the country in many ways, and also benefit for um, men, men's health. Yep, and yeah. also transparency, I suppose. Um, you know, the well, it doesn't have to be that transparent that you know <laughs> one call out of thirty-eight is positive. Well, it helps with our show. Yeah, right. <laughs> helps us understand. Yes, I, I I would agree with uh, George that uh, the Singaporeans have a tendency to uh, to uh, self-publicize more to uh, you know to market and sometimes overzealously uh, market but uh, it's themselves. their brilliance yeah. it is their brilliance and, and, and Dr. Christopher who did that surgery who, who we know quite well <laughs> really, <laughs> is the well. pioneer 
Singapore? Well, What's he, the pioneer he in certainly, Singapore? He certainly is a, a pioneer in Asia. And uh, until a few years ago, he has done more than anybody el- uh, else in Asia. So you cannot doubt that he has been uh, operated by a pair of very good hands. Yes. Uh, but, you know, over the last few days, literally every robotic surgeon in Liverpool has appeared in Singapore, Singaporean press one form or another. Because Everybody, well, of course, you know, this is an opportune time to come out and talk about robotic surgery and that, you know, I do robotic surgery <laughs> as well. So we got you know. on. <laughs> <laughs> so I also know how to, uh, you know, Play to ride the tide. <laughs> There's this bandwagon. But Let's it's, it's get on. brilliance, really, isn't it? It is, it is In a way, it is their brilliance. But the thing is, I admire that somebody, you know, because... To, to open up an issues about something like that for a, um, for a very prominent politician, it's not always a good thing. Because, you know, if you look at the list of politicians who suffer from prostate cancer, a lot of them actually were caught quite late. And yes. then to actually openly talk about something like this, it's, it's not always going to work in your favour. Uh, you know, because it, it, it shows um, health compromise might be something. So therefore, all these uh, data about how many hours was he in the hospital when he's going to got back to it's partly to show that you know this is a condition that is caught early it's well treated by the Singapore physicians and then also well looked after and now he's back on his feet and and nothing is compromising his ability to run a country so the question is is there really a rush to get people out of hospital great question right so if you have a you know contribution or you want to ask the doctors about prostate cancer or surgery robotic surgery I haven't come to da Vinci yet that's right um, <laughs> give us a call the number is zero three seven Seven one zero nine thousand. Tweet BFM Radio or text zero one six two zero one nine thousand. Good afternoon. Welcome to the show. I'm Mira Sivasudi. We have two urologists in the studio. Well, um, it's going to be a lot of water this <laughs> afternoon because it's going to rain. Definitely going to rain this evening. I always talk about irrigation. Um, <laughs> right. Dr. George Lee and uh, Dr. Lu Chitsin. Um, Dr. Lu is actually a skill, very skilled in robotic radical prostatectomy. Um, and we're feeding on Prime, Prime Minister Lee Hsien Loong's um, prostate removal surgery. Um, and he was back at work after a week. There was a lot of talk about how he underwent a robotic-assisted keyhole prostatectomy. Yeah. What does that really mean? It's robotic surgery, actually. Um, so do you want to describe exactly his yeah. recovery process? That no, was just, 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 just we go into yeah. the recovery. We haven't gone into Da Vinci and the robot. Okay. How much of the surgery is the robot actually carrying out? Well, essentially, robotic surgeries are uh, keyhole surgeries. Uh, but instead of uh, the surgeons holding the actual operating instruments, these operating instruments are mounted on robotic arms. Uh, and uh, the purpose for that uh, several folds, because human hands tire and human hands tends to shake, whereas robotic arms doesn't. So, so this, this uh, way does give you added control and uh, you, know, you, you get better precision. Now, the, the whole idea actually came about from early research by the U.S. Armed Forces, believe it or not, because the, the, uh, the U.S. Armed Forces are a bit reluctant to send surgeons into battlefield. 
And so they finance some uh, research into uh, remote surgery. In other words, bring a robot, uh, robots to the battlefield and the surgeon stays in the base. Because surgeons take a long time to train. Mm-hmm. And uh, eventually they ditched that program. But the technology was bought up by a civilian company and developed into what we uh, know today to be the Da Vinci system. There are a few other robotic systems being developed by other countries, but none of them has seen uh, market applications yet. So at the moment, there's only one robot, and it is the Da Vinci robot. Okay. Yes. So we're not and talking about little robots running around in hospitals. No. <laughs> <laughs> or probing and getting into no, the not hospital. at all. No. Actually, actually, it's uh, you know, it's 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 actually very civilized surgery because uh, you know the the surgeon actually sit uh, at a, a special uh, desk called a console. And uh, you are looking at two separate television monitors, so it is. Uh, it gives you 3D vision, so it's, it's a little bit like watching Avatar. You you, you get depth perception, mm-hmm. and uh, of course you are just uh, actuating two uh, rather expensive-looking joysticks, and these joysticks are moving your operating instrument. So the surgeon has doesn't have to be immediately. I mean, you know, next to the patients, the surgeon can be in a separate room. Mm-hmm. And in theory, the surgeons can be a few thousand miles away as wow. long as you can connect these two up real time, you know, in theory. And that's, that's where the whole idea came from, you know, better field surgery and all that. But in most installations, the surgeon is sitting in the same room. operating room, really. You know, it's just in another corner. Uh, and Shit, you're really playing computer games, really, aren't you? You're really playing Xbox in the, in the office, really, isn't it? I use the word very civilized. It is indeed, because first of all, you don't have to get scrubbed up. You're sitting comfortably. You can sip a cup of tea and you're doing your operations because you, you don't have, you know, your, your hands are not, you know, gloved up and, and, and all that. But then what's happening? I mean, usually in an operation theatre, I mean, not like I've been in one, but there are people monitoring blood pressure mm. and, and everything else. Oh, all so these if you are just zoned in to mm. removing the prostate, then who's monitoring everything else? Of course, else? You, you, have, you have by the patient's size an assistant, and of course you have the scrub nurses and you have the anaesthetist. And uh, because you have direct visions of everything you touch, you cut, you stitch, you know what's going on. So if there's bleeding, you stop talking, you start to stop the bleeding, if the, you know. So it's not that you're totally out of control. You, you are actually very focused on, on what you're doing there and then. So, so it is actually, I, I, I do find that uh, robotic surgery is slightly more mentally exhausting because you have to just concentrate that much more because you, you, it's not direct actions. You're actuating some levers which, you know, which uh, move the instrument. So uh, there's a lot of concentration. Uh, but, you know, for that, you get all these benefits that uh, we discussed about early on. Okay. Um, okay. One of the, you have to assure the listeners that one of the questions I always get asked mm-hmm. is that the robot might just suddenly decide that they don't want to play anymore and then suddenly just <laughs> yeah, throw a tantrum a on software you. software malfunction or you have a virus, <laughs> then what happens? You, you do. Very, very rare. And this has happened to me once, but right at the end of a, of a case. <gasps> There are always <laughs> the robot yes. decided. There are there I, are engineers. I had enough. <laughs> <laughs> there are engineers on standby, and of course, sometimes you know the the machine will hang, and of course, then you reboot and all that because all these are computerized. Uh, but you know, worst come to worst, let's say if you have a power failure or something, yeah. and the robots refuse to move anymore, well, you you just you know you just unmount the robot and proceed with the operations the standard way. 
that means you may have to open the patients up or you may have to uh, use keyhole instrument and finish up the uh, the surgery. So if keyhole instruments are available and it can be done. Oh, they're always available. So yes. why then opt for robots? Well, because uh, the the robot the robotic system gives you better control. You you get 3D vision and also more arms. Yeah. And and you know these uh these instruments they are articulated. So it's a little bit like, you know, you you have your hand entirely inside the patient's tummy. You can twist and turn your wrist left, right. right, up, down. Whereas, you know, keyhole surgery, all you can do is to Just rock your instrument, right. push in and take out, and that's it. You cannot turn the scissors at 90 degree, but the robotic scissors allow you to do that. And why has this come about just for the prostate? Because Is it because it's in an it's, area it's, which is very hard to reach? It's, because it's, it's designed by men. <laughs> for men. Well, there, Walnut. There, yeah, right. there, there are a few reasons to it. I mean, first of all, and I mean, being urologist, I'm sure Josh would, would agree with me. Urologist has a, you know, a, a history of loving to play with new technology. The really, George? Yeah. Just true. Do yeah. you use the robot? <laughs> but we, you know, like stone extraction, prostate resection, it's all like console. I mean, it's like, you know, majority of time, cutting um, uh, procedures in urology is very, very scarce these days because majority of our instruments are, um, you know, uh, technology-driven and telescopes and things it's like that. It's very interesting. It is, yeah. yeah Do you know, we know why? You know, a few years ago in Bowser's there was a lecture, prostate cancers, the role for the butcher, the chef, and the ice cream maker. <laughs> and it sums it up, you know. Robotic, I mean, prostate cancers, you can butcher it out, cut it out, surgeon. You can cook it. That means uh, microwave or, uh, or focus ultrasound. You can freeze it in your ice cream maker, and that's cryosurgery. And all these, you know, I mean, urologists has always had a lot of these instruments, and, they, you know, and many, many urological conditions have been through, you know, all these uh, tests of all this new technology. Some has stuck, some hasn't, you know. For example, microwave, that's already uh, fallen by the wayside. But uh, the robotic system, Da Vinci has been around for more than 10 years, and we are seeing the numbers increasing year on year everywhere. You know, so it is a technology that's going to stay because quite clearly it offers real advantages, real advance in medicine. Okay. Um, and of course, the, the question is, is there really a rush to get people out yeah. of hospital? Let's, let's talk about, you know, you, you looked at all the publicities and mm. then exactly, yeah. uh, you, you, you even know how many calls, you know, the one call out of 38, <laughs> right? Okay. So how many hours was he in the hospital? How long was the operation? And then also, you know, when did he get back out? You know, that sort of thing. Yeah. I mean, I, I wasn't there, but for a uh, prostate of that, uh, a cancer of that early stage, I would have thought they didn't do the lymph nodes so his operating time would probably be about two hours two hours okay yeah. now usually with that you know uh, length of operation to immediately post-op you are looking at somebody who is sitting there happily talking with very little pain and the following day he'll be drinking and the following day he'll be eating and he'll be up and about the following day, you know, sort of. So, so it, it's not unrealistic to, uh, to uh, discharge patients three days after robotic surgery. In fact, in America, they do it as a day case. Mm -hmm. But American tends to have a tendency to push patients out of the hospital just to fulfill this 23 hours thing so that remuneration becomes less of an issue because insurance companies are more prepared to remunerate 
procedures if it is done as so-called day case. Right. So they do have pressures to push patients out. We tend not to do that here. But, you know, patients get bored when they are well. And usually for robotic patients, on day three, they pass motions, they will want to go home. Mm-hmm. You know, so it isn't a question of you pushing them out. The patients actually ask to go out. Uh, but, you know, I mean, some patients will stay an extra day or two. Very rarely do I get patients who stay beyond five days. But is the human body made to cope with recovery that way? Because well, whatever course, you, you have removed in all Very good question, of, of course. And absolutely, it, it all depends on then, you know, having gone home, what you do with your body. I mean, if, you know, some patients just need to be supervised in the hospital. You just cannot trust them. <laughs> because they, they will be rushing back to... to um, <laughs> and to the pants. Yeah, that's right, yeah. yeah. So, but I mean, most patients are very sensible, you know, and, uh, you know, if they feel well enough, uh, and it is a, a, a joint decision. You don't push patient out, really. You know, if the patient is reluctant to go out, you know, you, 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 you sort of know that he needs a bit more confidence and you need the assurance of another day or two recovery. Do, do you think the these days the... Um, the attitude has changed quite significantly in terms of, um, you know, patient care. Because in the old days, it's all about recuperations in the hospital, mm. you know, cottage hospital and that sort of thing. And these days, if I remember, um, my wife had a cesarean section. And then, you know, within a few hours, I mean, since she was up and about, they said, oh, off you go. Because yes. the longer you stay in hospital, you're going to get all the sorts of diseases. And then, you know, and then before you know it, she was in the tube heading home. And, you know, my mother was horrified she just gave birth can't you pay for extra day in the hospital you mean person that's right and then but the reality is that do you think sometimes you know all these uh, started with the uh, benefit of technology do you think yeah yeah, quite quite quite, I mean we we, without very you know uh, without uh, technology is a a big role to play but I think George you and I also work under the constraints of the uh, you know the remunerating system of private healthcare. That's right. And and the pressure is there to, you know, to 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 get the patients treated and send the patients out. Mm. Whereas in government hospitals, patients are kept in purely to wait for surgeries to happen because yeah. of long waiting lists and yeah, all right. that, you know. So a lot of these uh, beds unfortunately are used just for logistic reasons to keep patients in so that he will get onto the next list uh, next list and so I would have thought it was the other way around actually um, well you know in both of us saying and I know yeah. both of you probably will yeah. not comment on this but sometimes I feel private hospitals want to keep you in um, not true you for know. the benefit no. of you know yeah. extra well, revenue <laughs> well in fact um, you know um, let's let's talk about in a you know both of us worked in a government hospital before in Malaysia yeah. And what, what is happening is that the bottleneck perhaps is in the operating theatre time. Yes. You have a barrage of people coming in the day before and everyone has to wait for that operation time. And then so that will block the bed and then that's one problem. And the second problem is that when someone is recovered and then uh, when you, the patient hasn't got the pressure of resources, limited resources, and it, because it's much, much cheaper to be kept in a hospital and they wanted that extra time in the hospital for re, uh, recovery and then so in that sense the discharge may not be so pressurized as a, uh, a part where you
where you have to pay for every single day that you're staying in hospital. Okay. Yeah. We'll come back and continue this discussion on robotic radical prostatectomy um, in view of Lee Hsien Lung's um, undergoing surgery to remove his prostate gland. I mean, he was back at work a week later. His medical leave was only for one week. Um, that's probably because it's Singapore, isn't it? Um, <laughs> although they did Otherwise say... Otherwise, <laughs> Although they did say he came back and, you know, his duties were much lighter and he was, you know, just in the office, that sort of thing. Um, but we'll come back and continue this discussion. If you have a question um, for the doctor, send it through at 016-201-9000. Tweet BFM Radio or give us a call. The phone lines are open 0377-109000. Good afternoon. Welcome to the show. If you have just joined us, well, we're on the last part of Dr. George's show. It's Friday at 4 and um, we're discussing prostate surgery in regards to a robot. Joining us as well is uh, urologist Dr. Lo Chitsin. Dr. Lo's got a lot of experience in robotic radical prostatectomy. George, do you do it? I don't know. You I don't, don't know. Okay. Is there a reason why? I, well, the um, majority of my training actually um, don't evolve around um, cancer work in men. So, um, you know, Chit and I work um, quite closely together. So, And, and the other thing about um, radical prostatectomy is that there is a learning curve because, you know, in a um, system like Malaysia, where everybody will actually do everything, it's not necessarily beneficial for patients because whenever you have the volume, you do more than 50 a year, and then you, uh, there are scientific data to prove that mm. that will be the case. So there's no point every one of us do it because you, don't, you, you just become jack of all trade and then you're master of none. And then so I believe in a system where I was raised and then a chit was raised as well, that you do the cases that you're interested in and then and you master in it. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, what do you think about that? Yes, absolutely. But I think in, in Malaysia, these, uh, you know, the, the current stage is going to continue for quite some time. Everybody would just they try on. to do everything. Right, yeah. Yeah. But, you know, it, there are scientific data to show that the more you do it, the, more, the better the outcome your patient's going to be. So mm. at some point, you know, uh, many people will probably just have to let go and let somebody who's yeah. interested doing it. But there's another point, if I can just briefly bring in, and that is, you know, uh, options given to patients. Quite... Quite frankly, a lot of our patients are not given all the options when they are diagnosed with a certain condition. Mm -hmm. And so the tendency is for somebody who do not do a certain type of treatment not to even mention that treatment. Now, in other countries, that can be can tantamount to uh, negligence. You didn't give me that option. I make a decision and I have this treatment and I'm not happy. Why is that? Are we protecting our territory? Well, partly I'm sure it is that. You know, I mean, interesting question, uh, you know, if you need an operation to ask your uh, surgeon how many mm -hmm. actually have you done. Mm -hmm. And then because in the UK, as you know, that it's a lot of it's yeah, publicized. publicized, you know, you just need to Google that your surgeon's name mm -hmm. under NHS website. It's like how many operations you've done and what are the complications you encounter. Some people might think that you're pushing that a bit too far. But, you know, it, it looks like that's a direction that patient would demand that sort of information. Yeah. Okay. So, um when you decided to go into this robotic surgery, was it difficult for you? Because it's very much against well, your I, traditional I had, training. Yes, I had already had uh, a long, uh, uh, you know, term interest in cancer work. And at the time, I was already doing a lot of prostate cancers. And uh, I also had backgrounds in keyhole surgery, laparoscopic surgery. So it was quite a natural transition. It was also a question of accessibility to the technology. And so there was, you know, there, there was uh, Prince Court uh, acquired a system and I was able to get onto Prince Court to use that uh, machine. So it was 
know, the coming together of all these uh, prerequisites, if you like. I mean, if a hospital doesn't have it, you want to go and learn, you can learn, nobody can use it. I mean, in Malaysia, there's probably about 20 or so trained robotic surgeons, but many of them are not very active because they don't have access to the, uh, to the system. So how has robotic surgery taken off in Malaysia? When did it land on our shores? 2004. Singapore has started in 2003. Okay. Yes. But you know, Mira, we, we, we were among the first in Asia. And today, there are only three systems, three installations throughout the country. Other countries have come in quite late. I mean, if you look at uh, Korea, Korea has 46 installations. Wow. China, 36. Thailand, 6. Singapore, 7. Philippines, 2. Indonesia, 1. Now, we have three. The two systems procured by the uh, Ministry of Health in 2003 is about to be decommissioned because parts will, they will have, they'll have difficulty getting parts because they are already very old system. Mm-hmm. Well, and, because uh, they're 11 years old, right? Yeah, and I hope the, uh, the ministry will, will upgrade this because if not, you know, then to, all the burden will be just on the only uh, installations in the private institution and so we'll be down to only one system. So one of the other things about technology is when it's expensive. Uh, it is incredibly expensive, you're inter- right. In government, uh, in, pri- in the private sector, there is a chance you could recover this cost. Yes. You could. In government, oh, it's probably going to take you a very, very long time. Yeah. Because so it's not just the technology itself is yeah. expensive because the disposables of that is yeah. quite expensive. And maintenance, yeah. right? But you know, given our economy, there's no reasons why we can not sustain these, you know, in yes, in absolute terms, t- you know, 10, 12 million system is not cheap. But, you know, we are no longer a, a, a poor, you know, backdropped uh, country somewhere in Asia. Well, I mean, maybe, maybe it goes back to priorities. Well, partly, partly that and partly, yes, I think you're, you're, you're quite right. You know, the, uh, the uh, Ministry of Health may have other priorities. Yeah. We have other conditions to, to worry about. Uh, and uh, in the private sectors, we are too focused on cost, cost and cost. And these days, the remunerating agencies, the insurance uh, companies and all that, uh, you know, they, they do have muscles. They, you know, they, they can make it difficult for patients to get uh, remunerated uh, for robotic surgery. Some uh, insurance company, frankly, just deny patients, you know, for certain condition, they just say it is not covered. Mm-hmm. And I had had situations where I offered it to the patients and then the patients withdrew because the insurance company refused to cover it. So these will gradually have to change and it will change from the patients because patients will eventually put such pressures that, you know, they will have to start to do so. Is it got to do with ignorance? I think it is generally it is that. I think if, you know, I think also it's about the populations and their knowledge about rights. You know, if they know their rights, they will go and demand it. Uh, a lot of it is the lack of that knowledge. You know, I would say that uh, in prostate cancer, robotic surgery has to be seen as now the gold standard. In America, 83% of all prostate cancers are taken up with the robot. Europe, it is approaching 15% because, you know, the number of installation is, is not quite there, but it is increasing all the time. Uh, you know, and uh, in Singapore, it's a very healthy uh, uh, percentage as well. And they, they are doing quite a good number. Over the last 10 years in Malaysia, we have done a total of 1,400 cases. So that... that, over that trans- 10 years? Over 10 years. 
All three robots. Uh, all three robots, you know. And uh, if you look at the figure last year... What's your rate of return? Hardly anything. Well, if you if you look at it uh, currently in the way you know they charge the robots and all that, you are looking at probably you have to do about 160 cases a year in order to pay for the robot. Mm-hmm. Uh, so essentially, what you're saying that even in private sector, the robot is not it's, self-sustaining. It's, not, it's, it's a loss-making entity. It's a loss-making entity. There's no question about it. But there are other. Uh, you know, um, less tangible uh, uh, um, benefits because, you know, it draws patients to your hospital, even from overseas. You know, I've just a couple of days ago had an email from a patient from Seychelles wanting to come here. Right. You know? So it's, it's, like, it's like branding. It's yes. like an expensive piece yes. of artwork yes. that yes. will attract so, a lot so of people. I think we fail miserably when it comes to marketing. Yeah. Well, that's right. So, so a, lot of, a lot of hospitals overseas, they, you know, you don't have the robot. No patients will come to your hospital. But you have the robots, patients with all kinds of unrelated conditions come to the hospital thinking that the robot will sort them out, you know. So there's all that uh, uh, intangibles. And, and uh, because of that, there are more willingness in the West for them to invest in su- such a system. Here, it tends to be, you know, what is the, the you know, re- recoup time for getting back your investment and, and, and all that. And so if you continue to do that, it, it, it is going to be very difficult to justify it's it. It's quite a catch-22 situation, it is. isn't it? Because it on is. one hand, you don't want to invest in it. On the other hand, the investment in it actually will uh, will get you uh, more yeah. uh, patients. I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm sure Mira is equally disappointed with, you know, the, the three robots only serving yeah, 1,400 uh, over patients last, over 10 over years, 11 years, years, you know. Mm. So, Chit, where, where do you think we're progressing in terms of, because we've uh, more awareness like Li Xinlong's situation, you know, uh, Tok Guru and a lot of publicity of men, uh, celebrities, politicians mm. get, get this condition and people come forward. And also we have an, uh, a nation that we eventually become aging. There, there are more and more men yeah. becoming older and there are more technology to, to have accessibility for early checking. I, I think, you know, it's very easy to progress if the investments are there because we do have a good number of pretty well-trained robotic surgeons, both in the government sectors as well as in the private sectors. So the, the, the human uh, you know, expertise are, are there. What we need is really just the systems and the remuneration system. You know, if the insurance are prepared to come forth and say, right, from now on we cover all this and patients know, okay, I can get better quicker with this, I want this, and there's no question asked, done. You know, of course, this eventually will lead to higher premiums and the rest of it, you know, yeah. but people have to accept that. I mean, know? cost of healthcare is going to go up. Uh, anyway. You, 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 can't, to be you can't get away from that. Yeah. But, you know, if you compare ourselves with Thailand, you know, six installation, it's shameful that, you know, we've st- stood still. It's almost like a race that, you know, we're stagnating because we were the first to kind of like uh, install it and then we're kind of stagnating at some point. Marketing Mm. again. Thailand Thailand has made its name for medical tourism. That's right. It's like, you know, know, something like this will um, create a lot of great um, opportunities for many doctors, healthcare in Singapore, for example. And then in Malaysia, you know, um, I I guess not many people probably know Mm. that, you know, the availability of this in you know, in two in government hospitals. Okay, so I'm going to end with whether or not one week is reasonable for Lee Sien Lung to go back to work. Well, I think at the push, he can probably go back and do some work. But I think, you know, 
if you do that, you're doing it for a point that, you know, I can go back to it within a week. But really, you know, at that stage, a week after robotic surgery, you'll, you'll still be feeling pretty tired. You'll still have a, some difficulty concentrating and all that. And so generally, I, for me personally, I, I tell my patients, you know, give it a couple of weeks if it's just, uh, office work, you know, it's manual work, probably about a month. You know, but of course, you know, there are individuals who are back in the office, albeit a couple of hours, within, you know, a few days. You always find those individuals. Uh, but they do make a big game out of this uh, a week uh, business. <laughs> <laughs> well, in my opinion, he probably just had a, a quick phone call, answering a phone call, some photo calls, and then yeah. he's probably resting in his backyard at the moment. Right, right. Right. But, but, and I think that's more humanly. Come on, after all, he had fought th- two cancers and, uh, you know, and, and, um, and just undergone a major operation. Robot or no robot, he's probably resting and had well-deserved resting time for yeah. him. Okay. Yeah, that's right. right. Let's all us wish him, you know, best of health and uh, fast recovery. Really. I'm sure he will. Yes, um, right. You know, with the whole robotic yeah. surgery. Well, not just whole robotic. It's got good genes, right? Okay. Yes. Yes. Iron ore. He's probably an Iron Man, you know, a Superman, really. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, it's it's amazing um, the, how technology has made such a big difference, isn't it? But I'm very, very disappointed that, you know, Malaysia is in the state that we are. Um, as I said, maybe it's priorities. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you think about men's health, it well, once again, uh, not given enough prior- priority um, as opposed to women's health. Mm. Um, I mean, we talk I about breast is, cancer. She, yeah, she is right. Eventually, whenever there are more awareness, empowerment of patients, yes. then it will be driven when by patients. the demand patients. is there, I'm sure they will meet that demand. Yeah, so it's patient mm. rights. It's also cost, yes. Dr. Lou. Because, because every hospital will, say, will ask you first, well, how many patients can you give me before I buy the system? Now, if you don't start to count and say, look, I've got so many inquiries, I ex- expect to get how many patients a year, most hospitals will not want to lose those patients to another hospital. Mm-hmm. So there is also that, you know, kiasu effect, if you like. Of course. You know? yeah. And it, it, uh, it can only work for the benefit of patients. Your message, Dr. Lu, on robotic radical prostatectomy. Well, I would like to say that uh, this has now got to be seen as the gold standard and it should form part of the range of options of uh, prostate cancer treatment. So if uh, you know this has not been mentioned, you should ask about about it. And it is available in our countries and we do have uh, a lot of uh, success stories as far as this condition is concerned. George? My message is when you have two urologists actually answer <laughs> that doing an interview, it's going to rain and it is it raining. Is raining. Now, By the way, George, a lady actually called in uh, to our producer to say that um, it's the ninth day of Chinese New Year. Is it the ninth? It's the ninth, yes. So we made a mistake. It's not the eighth day, it's the ninth day. That's right. Um, See, you know, after all those Chinese education <laughs> actually had failed me because even counting how many days of Chinese New Year has actually failed for me. Your math is deteriorating. It's deteriorating. It's age in a sense. I'm sure. <laughs> the prostate that has actually gone to my brain. Thank you both. Testosterone, I think. Thank you both very much for joining it's me. It's a pleasure, Mira. Dr. George Lee and Dr. Lu Chitsin, both consultant neurologists on The Bigger Picture, BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.